any organization needs to appropriately invest in protecting credentials because if you're not protecting credentials, any other security measure that you do is useless for the most part. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I welcome back to the show Martin Littman, CTO and CISO at the Kelsey Siebold Clinic. Martin and I tackle credentials, why they are as important at work as they are at home, why he pays close attention to indicators of compromise, and the importance of knowing what's normal before you try to spot abnormal behavior in your environment. It's one thing to implement effective policies to keep credentials safe at work, but how do you educate people in order to extend that protection beyond the perimeter of the business? And why should you pay close attention to normal user behavior if you plan on picking up abnormal behavior as a possible indicator of compromise. Martin, thank you so much for joining us again. For the listener, Martin has done several things with Exabeam in the past and with the show. He was last on the podcast back in March 2020 and has returned. We're going to kind of get into some different details here that's beyond the introductory show. But for those that don't know Martin, I'm going to have him introduce himself here now, just so you can kind of get to know who he is at a high level and where he works. And then we're going to get into kind of a topic of passion here for him and really for me as well. Martin, if you would, for the uninitiated, please introduce yourself. Thanks, Steve. This is uh, Martin Littman. I am the Chief Technology Officer and Chief Information Security Officer at Kelsey Siebold Clinic in Houston. If you're not familiar with Kelsey Siebold Clinic, we are a multi-specialty clinic that is actually growing very rapidly. But we have, uh, in addition to our medical practice, we are also a health plan and we are a five-star Medicare Advantage plan. I've actually been at Kelsey Siebold for 15 years. It's an exciting place to be, and we're on a, a significant growth path, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you, Martin. For those that are interested in additional information, uh, there's certainly a lot out there about Martin. He's very active in the community, but again, there's also our earlier show. I may have some other more sort of career-based questions later, but we're going to get into a topic that I think is often discussed but largely misunderstood or incompletely understood, as maybe the way I'd phrase it. I think the topic is a compromise in general. Now, this goes into lots of different directions, both for the corporate defender, the home defender, and then the blurred line between the employee when they're at work and at home. So there's several different sort of use cases and other conditions for sort of failure that we'll get into. Martin, at a high level, when we had our earlier chat that kind of spawned the idea for this show, what about account compromise is, is interesting to you or maybe misunderstood to most from your perspective? As we start this conversation, I'll probably end up using the term credentials. Often, from an IT perspective, we use that terminology. And just in the event that some people don't necessarily use that term all the time, 
when we use the term credentials, we're talking about somebody's username and their password, which is what they use to get into their account. So just as a starting point, I want to make sure that we've got that terminology laid out. But given that you own an account and that you own credentials, probably the most critical thing, and, and frankly, this applies at a corporate level and at a personal level, is that an account is typically assigned to a given human or a given service for a specific purpose. And so the large issue of, of account compromise is how do we know that the person using the account is the person who thought, who's authorized to use it or that the service using the account is authorized to use it? Because the account is basically designed for a specific purpose. And if that purpose is being bypassed, that's a both a personal concern and a corporate concern. Let's attempt, at least at a high level, to answer that question. I spent a lot of years in IT before I moved into IT security as an engineer, as an analyst, what used to be called a programmer. I don't think they even use that anymore. And then moving into being a security analyst and then sort of up through that. But when looking at an event or a log of account activity, how would, without some sort of capability, how, how did 10, 20 years ago, how would someone know if it was really the user or someone or something else? Now let's start there. What, what's the method of identifying that? And why is that important? Well, my judgment would be, if you go back that long ago, we really operated on a significant amount of trust with respect to accounts. We did not have technology tools in place that validated where somebody was when they used the account, for an example. Now, I may even take that back a little bit. So if you're going to go back that far, then you'd have to say, well, there really wasn't that much in terms of remote access or things like that. Typically, to get onto a system, you had to be at a physical facility. And if you were at a physical facility and you had an account at that facility or that computer system to use it, really the fact that it was given to you by some mechanism and that you knew that and you either kept it memorized or unfortunately in the past, a lot of people had them written down on pieces of paper under their keyboards or whatever. There really was no way to know that the person using the account is the person that owned the account, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I would disagree a little bit. If you think of at that point, if you go back 15 years, let's say, you're going to have, you know, there were VPN, you had laptops, you had use of this, and not everybody had multi-factor. There were certainly systems that didn't always account for that. And there was the beginning a time to blur between an internal account and an external or the, the overlap between how it could be used, at least back to the, what it would be the core authenticator. I think, though, that where I really want to go with this is that for many organizations, the method even today to identify, is this account activity normal or abnormal, doesn't exist. And it's a very, as a defender, if you're in a, depending on where you work, it can be a bit of a nightmare to say, is that a normal or abnormal thing? I can tell you in working on an incident, it's incredibly important to try to understand. You mentioned concepts earlier of like maybe geofencing 
we're looking at, you know, from where did Steve log in? Maybe for those that are new or might not understand what we meant by that, why is that important and how does that tell if something's normal or potentially anomalous location? What role does that play? Well, certainly it's very significant. And today, somebody may access a network by any given remote means. And in order to authenticate who that person is today, we would tend to use security mechanisms like two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication under the assumption, the given assumption, that the person that possesses that second factor is the person that owns the account as well. We may have, through firewalls or through other systems, we may have IP addressing schemes that allow us to identify where somebody is coming in from or where they're operating within our own environment. And from a behavior standpoint, I would say, uh, again, looking to today, there are certain types of systems that will collect information about what a user does. And over time, we can have systems that correlate that behavior so that if somebody does an activity outside of what they normally do, we can look at that as an anomaly potentially to be investigated. So let me take the example in healthcare. We have people who are responsible for providing care to patients, so they're looking at healthcare records for patients. Given that you are part of a particular care team, there would be a population of patients that you would typically interact with their, with their patient records. And if you interact with somebody records who are outside that space, then there may be a system that alerts to say, nurse Jones is looking at somebody's record that's not somebody they usually look at. So that amount of anomalous, anomalous behavior detection is available more and more. Likewise, at a directory level within the company, we may also know who typically accesses what kinds of systems. And when they access a system or a file directory or some other resource that's outside of their normal behavior, because we have collected their normal behavior on an ongoing basis, right. we can use that as an, an anomalous indicator as well. You covered a lot there. I think that for many organizations, and including some of those that I've worked in my past, something even like calculating impossible distance, where you're taking VPN data, let's say, and domain information and attempting to manually enrich it for the sole purpose of looking for either a likelihood of misuse, compromise, things of this nature, which even with multi-factor I've seen, that can be circumvented can be misconfigured, it can be captured and reused programmatically. But even taking this sort of enrichment of VPN information, core authenticator information, uh, GUIP information, and trying to merge it is incredibly difficult for the analyst to sort of create and maintain. We used to say, just to take a popular VPN vendor's information, taking the authentication steps from the system to the core authenticator was 18 different steps that we had to parse just to enrich it so we knew that set of steps was tied back to a certain user. That didn't even get us to the machine. It didn't get us into 
many other things we needed. It didn't calculate this sort of location or impossible distance. Steve signed in from, you know, Indiana yesterday or, or at 10 o'clock, and then at 10.05, he signed in from someplace halfway around the world. All of that's incredibly, can be difficult and time-consuming. So having capabilities that can do that for you programmatically is not only beneficial from a time savings perspective, but also to allow yourself to be defendable. You need to be able to answer those things pretty quickly. But there are steps you can take from a, a risk management standpoint to introduce into the process so that if you do see Steve coming from location one and then coming again from location two, you could potentially offer a second challenge to coming in from that location or challenge more often to as a mechanism to see, is this a stolen credential that somebody is using to get through? Are they able to answer the challenge, et cetera? Yeah, certainly a challenge or a step up that many adaptive authentication capabilities will offer. Here in just a little bit, I want to cover what I'm calling the first 90 days with Martin as it relates to accounts or uh, credentials, as you noted, and I guess ultimately the entitlements around them. But before we get to that, I think the other thing that's an ingredient in this that often goes overlooked is we're not looking at, I don't think anyone's recommending looking at anomalies for anomalies sake. It's trying to understand your environment of what is normal. I know in many organizations when you get on an outage call or a security incident uh, is being worked, one of the first questions that's asked is, is this behavior, does, does Steve usually do this? You know, does Steve typically sign into this server or has Steve ever signed into this server before? You are trying to step through, there's this burden of defense of the defender trying to say, okay, is this malicious harm meaning activity? Could they be compromised? Might they be some sort of insider threat? Or is this just bad IT? And that's one of the things that often gets asked. And so if you can try to understand what is normal, it helps the defender then find, in, especially in situations of crisis or in stress, that I think is an important capability to have, to know. Otherwise, you're going to burn a lot of cycles and probably cause an error in your analysis. Martin, do you have any thoughts on that particular perspective in terms of account compromise, credential misuse, and normal? Any thoughts there? Well, certainly, if, if you do not know what normal behavior is, and normal behavior can certainly be defined as systems you access, places you come from, times that you access, how long you stay connected, all of those range of things, and assuming you've got a way to collect that telemetry and analyze it to be able to determine what's anomalous, is absolutely got to be the first step. If you don't know what normal is, how can you observe what abnormal is? Correct. That's such a simple concept, but it's not unlike the the discussion that I have with people about, well, is somebody doing work or not? Well, now that they're remote, well, how did you know they were doing work when they were in the office? All right, let's pull on that thread briefly. That has been a, a theme that has been presented to me often in the last year and a half where people in leadership are worried that their staff is no longer uh, maybe working all they should. And this gets outside of credential theft or misuse a little bit, but it does fall in line with maybe knowing what is normal or what level of output or work. 
And somehow this became a security item, right? It's not a human resources or a management issue. It's showing up in the desk of the CISO and the team. Just in full candor, why, why are people getting that? Why are the CISOs getting that type of request to say, hey, fix my team problem or do I have a problem? You know, Martin, what's going on? Can you help me? Why is that happening? Why am I seeing that at scale? Why do you think? Well, I got to tell you, I'm, I am one of those guys who's getting those questions. <laughs> and I think, you know, part of the thought process, Steve, is I don't know whether we deserve the reputation or not, but the security guys know everything that's going on, or at least we perceive that they do, right? I don't know if that's reinforced by TV or other things, but the reality is that we do have access to the analytical tools, if they exist within the organization, that may be able to be indicators. So I'm going to go back to, to um, we have indicators of compromise, which is a common security tool. These are the things that we look for to determine that there might be malicious activity going on. I would submit to you that there are indicators of productivity, <laughs> if you will, that might exist within an organization. So for example, and, and I just had this conversation within the last two weeks on a couple of things I was asked to look at. And I did reinforce the language that I used earlier, which was, first of all, let me explain. I can't tell you how productive somebody is because I don't have, I'm not given that knowledge and there's nothing that I have that could collect that. And that applies whether they're in the office or not in the office. But there are facts that I can tell you I can tell you that we don't normally inside the office require two-factor authentication, but we always require it if you're working remotely. So I can tell you if somebody did two-factor authentication remotely to access a resource remotely. I can tell you by looking at file monitoring that we do that this person accessed files while they were connected. I can tell you that. We may actually have system logs that show that somebody used a system, and that may indicate in some of those tools as well. So I can provide you all those facts. You will have to make the conclusion if that is productivity or presence or however you want to term it. I still think, well, first distinction is I, I think it is for those listening that may be in this similar situation, it's important. I had someone teach me this a long time ago to just present the facts if you're doing an investigation. And unless you're asked to draw a conclusion, just know that you may take a wrong step. You may take an analytical leap. And don't put yourself in, this, in the place to perpetuate sort of the big brother phenomenon that often happens. With the visibility that a security team can often have, I think that it's, it's okay to get requests. But I largely think, this is a little controversial, that Management by walking around was a crutch for too many, and now that their staff has had to go away and work remotely, they don't know how to manage anymore. So it's, it's really an indicator to me that I've got a, probably a weak manager if they're wanting that type of information. That is now, it's not my job necessarily to say that, but it's an indicator that this is a, this is a, a management and a leadership issue, not a technical one that the security team needs to be involved in. Unless there's some sort of insider threat situation or some sort of incident that you're working or cross-functional effort that involves HR and legal. Any thoughts on that? Or do you think that that's off base or? Oh, no, I think that's entirely valid. And it, it kind of goes back to the simple statement that I made. How did you know they were productive before? And if you tell me, 
you right. walked around and you saw that they were working. Well, you saw that they when how many TV shows where you show somebody's playing a game and the boss walks by and they flip a screen up and they're doing something else. Sure. So there is a there is a work output measure and things of that nature. But I, but I agree totally. There is, and this kind of goes back to the trust in the organization. But I will a hundred percent agree with you that it is our job to present facts and only draw conclusions or help others to draw conclusions by interpreting those facts as necessary. And and one of the ones that came to my mind as we were talking about this, Steve, is I'm sure you got this throughout your career as well. I want to know what people were looking at on the web. (laughs) And so we had at a gateway, since every access to the Internet is authenticated, we can see all these things that are accessed. But I had to explain to people when we provided reports that emails they receive and websites they visit may make calls to other sites. So while you may see that they made a call to site B or C, they actually were only on site A and sites B and C were called by site A and they didn't right. even know what was going on. Now, we do have, I know within our own environment, we do have a systems tool that that sits at the endpoint level that does give us the ability to see where they specifically chose a URL to go to. But even in presenting that data, what I can tell them is the machine that was logged in at this IP address with this identity access this website. If you're telling me, if you're asking me, did the person do it? I can't answer that question because I wasn't there to watch them at the keyboard to know that they were the ones who were logged in with that identity at that machine. So one thing that I think that's helpful for this show, for the listener, and that I know that the listener appreciates, is sort of these thought experiments where we walk through a situation to try to ask a guest what they would do in a certain common condition. And, and the one that's on top of mind is if you've recently been given the responsibility to uh, consider the strength and the security of credential management and the entitlements around it, and or maybe you're a brand new CISO or security director. So this uh, part of the show I'm calling the first 90 days with Martin related to if you're concerned about account compromised or uh, stolen credentials. If you're doing a review, and again, there's a ton of variables here, but what does Martin what does Martin do first going in and looking at this, kind of trying to step through this issue and trying to figure out am I am I susceptible to theft? Am I is this a a likely a strong environment or a weak one? What's your step one, Martin? Oh, that's a loaded question. So the very first question I would ask is what do we do we have a standard by which we create accounts? What is the mechanism that allows an account to be created? Is it a manual process or is it an automated process? And if it's an automated process, which would be, you know, my recommended approach, is it a bulletproof process so that nobody can manually create an account that overrides that practice? Is there a, is there a naming standard associated with the account that's logical and understandable? And then what is the practice of actually creating the password itself? Since a password is, to use the NIST term, a memorized secret, that means it is personal and an individual creates it and only that individual that creates it should know it. But what technology or guidance is behind them creating that password? Are you doing anything 
to ensure that their password is being created with with a good practice in mind. The next step is also, okay, well, so we've got a process for this, for the username and for the password, but how does that password policy and practice stack up with what we know can be hacked or cracked if the the hashes that are stored in systems that contain these passwords are somehow compromised and a hacker is works a process to to crack them sure if it's an eight character password for example it will be cracked almost instantaneously even if it's complex the nature of hacking tools today allows that to happen so i would begin looking at the length and strength of the password process then i would also look at the next layer out so are there time how often do we possibly require that password to be changed got a very strong opinion in that space by the way and in addition to that do we have any other rules around that password is only used to access the network do we do single sign on to other systems so that a single key is what's used to get around or do people end up with multiple passwords let's pause there just real quick so you you started off going through kind of the how are accounts and associated credentials created and the standards around them how are they where are they at the beginning of their life cycle and what are the tools to support that i think then you you started to shift a little bit into password policy and sort of use, which can kind of be, that's a both a technical, meaning a thing in code, but also a thing on paper. And is there anything in particular about the, the policy on paper in terms of written consumable standard or policy that, that you think organizations need to include or that they often forget or that gets sort of left behind where maybe the adversary or technology leaves behind a common policy that you see? Is there anything there to focus upon? Because switching from one to the other, there's typically different people that are responsible for each of those sorts of areas at an operational level. Well, certainly. So at a policy level, oftentimes policies are written to specify a number of characters and a manner of construction for the password. So for example, a policy may say a given password has to be X number of characters and has to include X number of digits, mixed case, and or a special character, and a combination thereof. So that may be how a policy is written. But if you have no piece of technology behind being <laughs> able to check when somebody creates a password, you don't know if they did that or not. Likewise, the common human practice is to use common dictionary words or common names or the name of the company or things like that. And they will use that to create their password. I'll use the example. If you go out to a password testing site right now and enter the name of my company, Kelsey-Seabold, you will get a message back that says it will take 20 million years or whatever the number is to crack this password. But I guarantee you that if somebody were attacking my company, that's one of the first passwords they'd try because that's a local password that would be important within our sure. company. 
Am I answering your question? So I really think you, at a policy level, you've got specificity with it. But if you have no technology behind it to enforce the specificity, it doesn't matter. Okay. So now you've naturally arrived where I hoped you would on this topic. I see this often. We've talked about this. I don't know if it was an earlier show or not, but everyone is required to create documentation for the foundation of their program and to appease auditors on and on. Lots of policies exist. And you said something, though, that there's, a, there's two schools of thought. Create a policy that's very strong on paper or create a policy that matches your technical capability. Those are two very different things for most organizations. So for example, you say you have certain requirements around creation, password strength, these sorts of things. What is your recommendation there for those that are in this position, and I know many are, do you write a strong sounding policy so the auditors love you? Or do you write a policy that matches current environment capability? Or is it somewhere in between? Because there's a cost to doing each of those, both of those paths. So what's your take? I think the position that I would take today is that, and this may, may, may not be where you're going, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. I would suggest that any organization needs to appropriately invest in protecting credentials, because if you're not protecting credentials, any other security measure that you do is useless for the most part. So given that, I would say the password policy needs to be reasonable. It needs to be specific enough. But more often, there are compliance guidelines that typically people have to fall into to be within compliance. But those are very simple. I mean, for the most part, all of the compliance guidelines basically say minimum of eight characters with some level of complexity. Right. And that's about the extent of the of the policy. From my standpoint, I think the practical way to build a policy is to look at what documentation is out there that tells us that this is where we need to be to have the most reasonable level of protection. And you tie your technology to supporting that reasonable language, if you will. Yeah. I see teams get caught up in this a little bit where they're down that path, they're following the advice you just gave. Um, they have some element of what I'll call technical help, but they may not have all of what they need. So for example, they may have a way to enforce partially, but not maybe create credentials, but maybe not enforce or report on over time. And so they get caught up in this sort of condition where uh, they're not able to equally enforce or e readily or e easily report back, or there are certain credentials or accounts that don't afford that capability, or they're so the, the pain is owned by the security team because they wrote a policy or because they, they can do it, but it requires hero work to figure out all the details. And they've got nine audits a year and they're just burning themselves out on this stuff. So, my take is offer good advice, have it as a standard. But your policy, you have to be honest as long as you're communicating and say, look, we can achieve this, but it's manual. It's error prone, right? It's costly. It's not programmatic. If it's not programmatic and easily to easy to manage, then you're sort of, you're in trouble. And that includes your ability to have visibility on the behavior of the account. It includes your ability to have step-up step authentication if there's some me uh, required mechanism. 
in there, some sort of knowledge behind the credential behavior, both outside and in. I've got a question for you, and I think you, you alluded to this. There's two things that I also have probably um, maybe a flawed opinion on, maybe not, and that involves password rotation and password lockout. I'm going to take a break. I want to know what you think on those two things. You run big program. You help other people. You, know, you give advice through many means for people to run theirs, other CISOs. What's your take on those two topics? What should they be? I have an outline written for a blog post that I'm going to put on my website and probably on LinkedIn on this very topic because I, in my role, the compliance architectures that I frequently have to look at are high trust, PCI, and then NIST. I went out and looked very carefully through the PCI and the high trust documentation. And both of those architectures require or recommend that you change your password every 90 days, but they provide no logic for why that change is necessary. As food for thought, before I make my next statement, I'm going to ask people, when was the last time your bank asked you to change your password? Right. So NIST has a very nice explanation in the appendix about memorized secrets, and it talks about human behavior. And basic, the basic conclusion of NIST is longer is stronger. And it is not a good practice to make people change passwords regularly. And the reason is, when they have a complex password they have to memorize, and they have to change it frequently, the human behavior is to look for a way to simplify creating that complexity. So they will create a password, and they will add the necessary characters, special characters, numbers, etc., at the beginning or end of the password. Right. They will embed other words within it that are easy, easy to guess. So they meet the policy, but they override the policy by their behavior, if you will. But the longer a password is, the greater the chance is that somebody will move on to do something else. So I'll frankly say, uh, since I recently went through a pen test and we had this discussion about where password hashes are stored in servers, a password that's a 15-character length is going to bypass the, the landman storage. You're probably you're a more <laughs> technical guy than I am. Right, right. Yep. It's going to bypass landman storage, and therefore that hash is going to be harder to get to for a hacker who's able to get to a server. So today we have a policy that's 12 characters uh, for most users and 14 for administrators, but we will probably up those numbers now. And then in terms of life, I'm not a fan of the 90-day password personally. And today we allow our passwords to be much longer, to be held much longer than that. But we do change your password under certain conditions or force you to change it. If we know that you shared your password, we can discover that some way. If you failed a phishing test that we do internally, or if you got an actual phishing email that was determined by our security system and you clicked on it, all of those things cause you to get your password changed. So I think, I think if you're involved in an incident, your passwords need changed. Yes. No question. And that falls in that space too, Steve. That should be part of the response condition that's pre-agreed upon by the organization, that that's just what's going to happen. I'll tell you, I would rather have a well-created password 
and a well-monitored, which includes some sort of adaptive authentication. So have visibility on the behavior of the credential, have it well-created, and have it some element of adaptive and one-time pad, these sorts of things, than an account that is susceptible to being locked out uh, or uh, frequently changed. The cost of changing passwords, especially for enterprise accounts, service accounts, I've seen more outages and more problems around credential maintenance and also seen more denial of service based on uh, intentional account lockout or from as a product of guessing. Monitor the failures. Don't just lock out after three times. I, I, and that's, it could be for a portal, but I think that it's a colossal waste. Again, this is controversial. I think password changes and, and password rotation is a, even though everyone does it, it causes more trouble. Think of the support costs. How many executives go and change their account and then their BlackBerry used to, or they're not anymore, but this was back in my day, BlackBerry doesn't work, their iPhone doesn't work, their iPad doesn't work. They forget it over the weekend, and that's a support ticket, right? It's the friction isn't worth it necessarily, in my take. Now, again, it's controversial, and one size does not fit all. But to me, that's that's something that I think we get wrong often, or needs to be sort of rewritten. Uh, but I, both of those things, especially account lockout. Microsoft came out and even said that about account lockouts. Funny enough, your comments made me think of two things. One is. Even at the point at which they do have to change their password, they're going to have to do all those other things, right? You need to have your staff, your help desk, your desktop people, your systems people, whoever's going to engage with anybody that make make the call, have that documentation available that when you change your password, all these things are impacted. Just be aware this is what's going to happen so that you proactively provide support for them to do that. The second thing that came to my mind that I thought I should mention, we're, we're sitting here talking about user accounts in the primary discussion, but we're also talking about service accounts. Right. And it is a fairly common reality that service accounts are managed differently than user accounts. Absolutely. And they are managed differently, but I've also seen service accounts, some weird things with that in the past too, where people are using them either using their own ID as a service account, they're using, they're surfing the web with a service account. The service account is in the domain admins group, which is like a, a virtual auto bond for an adversary that gets that credential. I think you, we even had a discussion earlier about expiration of passwords. And you were saying that there was one condition where uh, if it meets certain criteria, you can even keep it for a year. Which was that? And what, how did that, how did you set that up? That is our current user practice is you get to keep your password for a year when we went to this 12 and 14 character model. Okay. Now, I can tell you that I've had partners that audit us and other healthcare organizations we interact with, and they are not fans of that practice. I point them back to the NIST documentation. And I, like I said, I am thinking about increasing the number of characters required, as well as bolstering some of the technology the password manager that we use today to check passwords against a dictionary list to ensure that they don't use, we need to do an audit of that dictionary list to ensure that it's pretty, pretty rock solid also. And that, the, and that that technology is working. You need to ensure that if you have a piece of technology to manage the process, that you don't turn around and find out, shit, allowed me to use cat for a password. Right. <laughs> 
The other thing that I think that gets missed, and many folks that even work on the technical side of security miss or don't know, is the involvement of the credential, sort of the outside-in approach. You know, everyone's talking about ransomware, and there's several avenues for that problem to occur in your environment. Precursor malware, standard sort of phishing, but a lot of it is also credential theft that happens, credential theft and credential compromise, and even the reselling these sort of initial access brokers, as they're known, buying and selling credentials that, that are tied to certain domains that would allow for remote access, especially in smaller organizations or midsize. I don't think many people understand that how common that is and what avenue that presents for compromise and the importance of uh, having an eye on that to say, how do you identify either through intelligence or through behavior that your credentials might be in the hands of or being used by an adversary. That concept is completely lost on them. Again, so am I looking into, do I ha have intelligence feeds or do I have someone or is my team looking into these marketplaces or these dumps to see or, or my, from a supply chain perspective, so the people I do business with or my own organization, and then also is the behavior of my internal and sort of outside in and then internal credential behavior. I think people miss that as well. And I think those are sort of missing ingredients in many, in the minds of, of many security folks. I agree. Now there's in that vein, I would add that part of that password policy also needs to have some specification that says, my opinion is your corporate credential, your user identity, for example, is not to be used as a user identity anyplace else. Hmm. Now, we can't technically enforce this, right? But you should not use your Kelsey Siebold password to log into Facebook or Twitter or anything else. You use a separate password for that. Sure. There are uh, services, and I won't specify any by name, but, but all of us as consumers probably receive from some service that we have something that says, has your data been compromised on the dark web? Right. There are a number of services available to consumers to look at their own data, their email address, and see if their email address has been involved in a breach someplace. Some of these services, not all of them, but some of these services actually provide visibility to whether or not your password was exposed or sure. not. We ourselves have used such a service internally for two different perspectives. One is to help educate our, we, we want to educate our corporate people that in the same way we ask them to protect their credentials, Kelsey, we want them to help protect their credentials in their own private lives as well. So we encourage them to follow the same practices personally that we do internally. Use a password vault to collect all your complex passwords so that you have a safe place to go and, and you don't have to remember them or write them down. But we can use that service also to test against, for instance, when you're creating a password, we can test to see if the password you're using is one that has already been compromised in the dark web and we can prevent you from being able to use that password. Absolutely. And that's that would prevent against several conditions, password spray, these sorts of things, say whether it's commonly used or, or known compromised accounts that are used to sort of, to try to mass sign in to certain systems. 
Uh, you mentioned, I, I don't know if you remember telling me this, I won't say the person's name, but I certainly think that using uh, your own sort of password vault is fantastic for both corporate and personal, obviously separate. But uh, there was a technique that a friend mentioned that he uses in addition to the password vault. I don't know if you know, remember what I'm talking about. No, no, I, I remember exactly what you're talking about, and I know who it is. He's a well-known security guy. I won't, I won't restate his name. but Yeah, I don't, I don't want to call him out, but what's the advice? Because I liked it. He shared this advice, and I thought it was great. He said that in addition to his password vault, which has complex passwords, uh, he may use – so in, in those password vaults, as you know – will supply the credential to the login page that you're on. It'll If you have it as an add-in in your browser or whatever. But what he does is he has three other characters that he adds to every password that he knows in his head what those three characters are. And they're never written down anywhere. They're never stored as any part of any password. And he either inserts them at the beginning or the end or in the middle of a password. And that is his secondary mechanism of having a protection for his password vault. And I thought that was a very cool idea. I didn't want to tell him it was, but it was a very cool idea. <laughs> no, I think it's fantastic. I, I wanted to make sure we cover that. And then there's some other things that, you know, I think there's some, we reference them as accelerators in the wild that allow for additional bad things to happen. And one of those, when big organizations have a breach, there was a recent cell phone carrier that had a big problem and but there's many others before then where things like challenge phrases and, and responses get also leaked or dumped in with this breach information and i also know you have a perspective on that where many of our own organizations have a reset process many of the uh, solutions that we use or things we use in our personal life also depend on these response challenge response if you forget your password or have some other types of issues. What's your take on on how to manage the password, the selection of the question and the giving of the answer when it comes to this topic? I'll preface this by saying, if you're a loner, this is not going to work very well for you. Assuming that you have other family members that you're associated with their friends or whatever, the the mechanism, your own data is something that can be socially searched out. People can find out when I was born, where I was born, went to high school, all those kinds of things, even pets, etc. But they may not know that about person XYZ, who is a friend of mine or my spouse or some other family member for whom I also know that data. And you don't know that I'm using that data as my secret data in those questions. So. That level of obscurity is what I also use to prevent using my own data as those secret questions. I just use somebody else's. Right. Mine's a little less eloquent, I think. Myself and some will just, because the questions, for the very reason you mentioned, you just make things up. Now you've got to keep track of what you've made up in some place that's secure as well, right? The password vault's a good place to do that. Sure. Providing that doesn't, and those have had problems in the past, right? Uh, there's one in particular that got lit up. But yeah, that's absolutely the case. You know, there's so much we can cover on this topic. I think, you know, I've addressed some of the perspectives I have on, I think, the creation of and the monitoring around for the defender is, to me, as important as a parameter such as like lockout or 
others where if you're not watching and not attempting to understand the behavior of the credential and the use of the credential and from where it came and the sign and all the telemetry around it, you're really going to have a massive problem that's really kind of table stakes at this point. But there's also a lot you've shared that is very applicable to your daily life for the individual. Is there anything else that you would add as advice uh, before we depart here as either something to do at home or for the home employee or for the enterprise that uh, we haven't covered yet? So two things come to my mind. One that I think I passed over and I should have mentioned earlier is when you're doing that two-factor authentication, if you have the option of using an app instead of getting an SMS text message, you should absolutely use the credential-based app versus SMS. Text messages can be spoofed. And so I think at some point we will go away from SMS text messages for two-factor authentication. The second thing that I would mention is when we talk about password vaults, and we know that some have been compromised in the past, but the one thing that I would advise against is ever using the native browser function to store passwords. Oh, yeah. I would use a dedicated user vault for passwords and not, I mean, the modern browsers may be much more secure than they have been in the past, but don't let your browser remember your information. I'll second that. Some people use it in a pinch, but you don't want that collected. That's fairly trivial to have that collected as well and sort of vacuumed up, especially if there's any type of malware on your endpoint. It's better, as Martin noted, to manage that uh, centrally and not in the browser. Yeah, that's a, an excellent point that we, we should have mentioned prior. Martin, we're, we are at our time. I want to thank you again for participating with the show to bringing a point back to the show, a topic that's important to kind of dig a little deeper into. And uh, I appreciate your thoughts, your opinions, and your expertise on this. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thanks. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first. 